Hey, it's great to have you here today. I'm, I'm glad you made it. We, uh, Thanksgiving for us was fun. We were all together. You guys were over. Griffey was over with you, and uh, Nate was in, and Shannon came on in. So we had the whole gang there. And, yeah. and uh, the main critique I've heard on, on Thanksgiving is I made way too much food. There was, there was too much. Not so. just too much. Like almost an embarrassing, an embarrassment of riches. There were seven people, there were seven pies. I mean, again, I'm not, I, didn't I don't want to complain. The I didn't night, make all those. Yeah, you made six of them though, so no, that doesn't, it was unbelievable. Yeah. It was, it was a lot of fun though. Yeah. I'm, glad, I'm glad that we were able to celebrate. Hopefully your celebration went well too. And Good to have you here today, whether here live in the room or, or those joining us online. Nine o'clock is when we do our, our online service. So if this is your first time with us, we're so glad you came today. And uh, obviously in this season, things are a little different. We're doing four services, eight, nine, 10, and 11. They're a little shorter than normal, trying to keep the herd thinned out a little bit. Mm-hmm. So overall, it's been, it's been working really well. Um, but we're going to really mess things up next week. So next week, our kids are going to do their, their Christmas program for us. And the thought of them <clears throat> doing four services in a row, that wasn't going to happen. In fact, last year, I think, I forget how many we did, but by the last one, it was getting really interesting. <laughs> so, um, so the way we're going to handle this is there will be one at 2 o'clock on Saturday. And then next week, we'll do 9 and 10.30. So the good news for you, you don't have to change a thing. Just show up like you normally do. And then on top of that, we will be offering it online too. But uh, one of the things that we've just loved and appreciated through this season is this is one of the places in a crazy world right now that you can feel a little bit normal. Mm-hmm. So we just we want you to be able to enjoy the normal, especially the normal, the normal of Christmas. So uh, students, anything going on that we need to know? <clears throat> it was a wonderful week off, at least for me. I know um, so, some of our other leaders enjoyed that week off as well. But we are back at it tonight. Uh, tonight, I'm thinking of tonight, uh, we're talking about busy is the new lazy. And, mm. and how getting ready for the Christmas season, we don't want to lose our connection with God uh, or connection with reading the Bible, things like that. Uh, so it's going to be a really good time. Uh, but the, the one thing that we're doing special tonight that I'd like everybody to know about is that we are inviting all of our Revive alumni. So the, oh, those cool. people who are in college, uh, we're inviting you back for one night to come hang with us if you have the time, if you want to. We get it. If you want to big league us, like I know Nikel Carlson will be big leaguing us because she thinks she's cooler than everybody. Um, but no, if you'd like to come hang with us for a night and just even if, um, even if it's just for the front end and you come play games or whatever and leave, that's totally cool. We want to invite you out for that. So that's tonight, six to eight. Refuge is back to normal, 6.30 to 8.30 on Wednesday, and we are going to roll into Christmas. Let me add one other thing. We don't normally do shout-out announcements, but Bob, does your, your thing starts this week, right? Yes. Yeah, so we're, we're starting up a, a new group for, it's 18 to 25, yes. so hanging out with the coins on Monday nights from when to when? Seven to whenever. Yeah, they're into the whenever thing. So it starts at seven and it goes on for eternity. So if you want to know more about that personally or if you want to know more about that for someone in your family, guy at the back wall, Bob Coyne, go ahead and talk to him. So today is the first Sunday of Advent. We, we just move immediately out of Thanksgiving and on into preparation for the Christmas season. We've been using uh, an, an app around here, a Bible listening app called Dwell. 
and you're able to go ahead and sign up for that. Um, if you get the, the weekend update, you can sign up through that or talk to us out there at the welcome desk. But um, that through that, you're listening to Scripture, taking it in through listening, which is the way most people took in Scriptures through all the centuries, right? But what they've done for Advent, they have an Advent listening program, and then they also have a devotional guide that they've published that comes in the form of a PDF. So you can get on your phone or whatever and read along every day. We thought a great way to start today would be to go ahead and, and listen to that first reading. And then this is the time, too, that we're going to take communion together because Advent is a time of, of preparation, so we're getting uh, prepared uh, as well through communion. And uh, so just have that, have that available and ready to go. And if, if you didn't get it, feel free to go ahead and stand up and get it from the back or the sides. We also have the gluten-free on the side tables, and it's a little different this week. Instead of being in the little plastic bags, we've actually done a, a double cup. So the, the bread is underneath, underneath the juice. So go ahead and read for us, please. This time of year, our culture is bathed in the warm glow of holiday lights. Even the most hardened skeptic's resolve is tested by a steady stream of nostalgic films, music, meals, and customs. And at the center of this sentimentality lies a baby in a manger. At the mention of this babe, it is difficult to think of anything other than the traditional nativity scene, with Mary, Joseph, wise men, and a smattering of barnyard animals, all reverently paying tribute to the newborn king. Timeless as this picture may be, it is an incomplete and one-sided understanding of the nature and purpose of Christ's birth. In Advent, we see both the humility and power of God on display. In Christ, we encounter God entering into the chaos and brokenness of our world, taking it upon himself to heal, redeem, and restore. Yet simultaneously, it is a birth that shakes the earth to its very core. The same power that tears the veil in two splits rocks, and opens tombs, is contained in the frailty and vulnerability of an infant child. In Jesus, the prayer of Isaiah 64.1 is definitively answered. Oh, that you would tear open the heavens and come down, so that the mountains would quake at your presence. Advent literally means coming or approach. And as the people of God, we are invited every year to enter attentively into the season of holy anticipation. As we do, let us never lose sight of the true nature of the King that came and will come again. So they have the reading, and then there are two other parts. They have a prayer to be prayed, and they also have a, a practice for the season. And they've chosen to focus in on the practice of prayer. So why don't you go ahead and read the part about the practice for us? In a season filled with busyness and distraction... This week, you're invited to focus on the practice of prayer. To begin, reflect today on where you pray. Do you have a dedicated place of prayer in your home? If not, take time to identify a location where you will pray daily during this Advent season, as well as simple ways to make this space reverent and set apart for the Lord. And so having read ahead, I, I love this. They're focusing on prayer for the entirety of Advent and just then giving you different, different tools and, and uh, methods in order to see your, your prayer life increase. So uh, would you go ahead and lead us now in communion? Yeah. Let's go ahead and uh, grab the bread and the cup here. And these are both representations of Jesus' sacrifice for us. So it's, it's kind of weird to, to think about his death 
as we enter into this season where we focus entirely on his birth. Mm -hmm. But that body, that infant body that came down ultimately to be broken for us, Mm. saved us from our sin. And that is something just truly humbling and truly amazing. So let's, let's partake uh, in the bread as we uh, celebrate Jesus' body being broken for us. Jesus also spilt his blood. And these days... The spilling of blood is seen in many different ways. Um, sometimes it's completely insignificant, whether it's in the newest Call of Duty game or some movie that we watch. We just see people die and it's whatever. Or we see it in a completely different light where, where we're focusing on the sacrifice of a human, a soldier, a police officer, someone who's laid down their life in the protection of others. This blood is completely and wholly significant. And while those sacrifices that people have, have done for us, those sacrifices that people have made for us, there is no greater sacrifice than that of Jesus spilling his blood for us. Let's take the cup together. Mm. And finally, if you'd pray that prayer. Yeah. Almighty God, give us grace to cast away the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Now in the time of this mortal life in which your Son, Jesus Christ, came to visit us in great humility, that in the last day when he shall come again in his glorious majesty to judge both living and the dead, we may rise to the life immortal through him who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. 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 Thanks, Brad. Yeah, it's been an interesting season, and yet in all of it, there have still been many reasons to celebrate. Yesterday morning, uh, we got to celebrate a wedding. Uh, Bree Johnson and Jeremy uh, Dosek were married, and so if you see them in the next few weeks, make sure to go ahead and congratulate them. And then we also got news that uh, Dale and Patty Hansen became grandparents again yesterday, so I think that's number four for them, and they're, they're excited and rejoicing. So uh, good, reasons, good reasons to celebrate together. We've been throughout the fall in a, in a series in the book of Joshua, and um, today we're going to come to, I think, one of the... Um, well, it's, it's, we've got to talk about it. It's important to talk about it. And that is this, this question of um, what, do you do with all, what do you do with all the death? What, what, do you do, what do you do with the fact that God tells the people to go in and utterly destroy the people of the land? Can't ignore that. It's there. It's there in living color. What's going on with that? In fact, let's look at the command. Deuteronomy chapter 20 the people are told in those towns that the Lord your God is giving you as a special possession to tr- destroy every living thing. You must completely destroy the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, just as the Lord your God has commanded you. Very, I mean, it's definitive, right? It's there. And what happens, I think, for the modern mind, 
and probably especially for the modern American mind, is, is a question arises. Did God condone or even command a genocide? And if God condoned genocide or if God commanded genocide, is that a God I want to worship? Is that a God I want anything to do with at all? People struggle with this. In fact, when a person is a new believer, a lot of times they'll ask, okay, I want to, I want to start reading the Bible. Where should I start? In most books, where do you start? Page one. And for us, what we typically tell a person is, go to Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, check out the Gospels, get to know Jesus. And in part, it's a great starting point to get to know who Jesus is. But I think some recommend that because they're afraid if you start at Genesis, before you know it, you're going to be in Leviticus, you're going to be reading about different colors of mold, and then you get over to, to Joshua, and people are dying, and you're like, what is going on here? We're afraid that they're going to kind of turn away from their faith if they read that part first or something, get to the, get to the scary part of the book. And so so, and so we, we, we have this issue here. It's real. It's in the Bible. What do we do with it? Part of the reason we're in Joshua to begin with is because way back at the beginning of August, I had a friend send me a link of a, of a sermon her pastor had preached. And she said, I want, you to read, I want you to watch this. I want you to think about it. And so I'm watching it. And the first thing that happens, I'm watching it. I'm going, this is where we've got to go next. We've got to go to Joshua. What's the main command of Joshua? Be strong and courageous. The Lord your God is with you wherever you go. And we're living in a season of such fear, whether it's the fear over COVID or the fear over riots or the fear over just, you know, the condition of our world right now. It's a season of fear. And so that command was so important for us. In fact, you know, I've heard people in, in recent times saying, stop telling me to not be afraid. Stop telling me to not be fearful. And I'm like, well, if I do that, I've got to stop telling you what the Bible says. Because the Bible never says it's okay to be scared now. The Bible says again and again and again, be strong and courageous. I am with you wherever you go. You can trust me in this. And so I love that part. And I grabbed onto that part right away. But as I continued to watch the sermon, I knew why she sent me the link. It was because very early in the series, the pastor decided to address this topic. There are people who immediately, they, they, they heard where they were going. They're like, I don't know that I want to study Joshua. I don't know that I want to hear about all the murder. I don't know that I, that I want to worship a God like that. And so the pastor started to explain, give a defense for what's going on in the Bible. And what he did is something that I've actually seen other uh, modern commentators do with the book of Joshua. He, he began by saying he suspected that what might be going on here is hyperbole. It was hyperbole, kind of a, an exaggerated language. In fact, just, just to get this clear, let's, let's look at the dictionary definition again. Hyperbole, exaggerated statements or claims not meant to be taken literally. Not supposed to take these literally. They're just out there. Yeah, they're commands, but, but you know full well he didn't fully mean all of this. It was an exaggeration. It was, it was, it was just a, you know, a, a very bold way of speaking. He went on further to say what he believed might be happening here is, is military trash talk. It was a way of God and Joshua just to get the soldiers psyched. To get them up and ready for battle. Now, now we understand trash talk, right? I mean, Bears are playing the Packers today. And, and you know, I know some of you already are, are kind of, you're, you're ramped up about that. And we, we're at a church where most of the year, Cubs and Sox fans live in peace and harmony. But then, you know, there's the baseball season. And there's this great divide that happens. And during that season, especially the Crosstown Classic, I mean, you'll have Sox fans like, we're going to kill you. 
And, and, and Cubs fans, oh yeah, we're going we're gonna to rip off your arms and legs. Now, there are very few people that take that seriously. A few do. They need help. But the rest of us, we know. We know it's trash talk. We take it for what it is, right? It's not meant to be taken seriously. And so he's saying that's what God was doing. He's kind of doing, doing trash talk against the Amorites and the Hittites and the Jebusites. And, you know, he's, just, he's trying to ramp the people up. There are two basic problems I see with this. And honestly, there are a whole lot more, but there are two basic problems I see with this. The first is this. How do we know when to take God's command literally? Because it doesn't, this was a command of the Lord. It was a command of the Lord. So how do I know then? If, if this one's hyperbole, how do I know do not murder isn't hyperbole? How do I know do not commit adultery isn't hyperbole? How do I know that be strong and courageous for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go isn't hyperbole? Maybe he's not really with me all the time. When, when we start trying to write off what we don't understand in the word of God as hyperbole, uh, we start to run into problems. Now understand this, the Bible does talk in figures of speech. The Bible does not always speak literally. For example, when Jesus said, I am the door, there isn't a person in the room going, which one? Which one? Which one? Which door? We have a lot of them. Which, which one do you mean? We understand that Jesus meant, I'm the way to God. There are times that he does speak in figures of speech. A command is never a figure of speech. A command is a command. And we're to obey the commands of God wholeheartedly and completely. So, so we run into this problem that if we, start, if we start looking at them as less than literal, we're going to start picking and choosing which commands we'll obey and which commands we're going to push away. And, and God says, no, I want, you, I want you to be obeying me wholeheartedly. I think one of the problems that the modern American mind has when it comes to issues of faith is that we have a hard time embracing mystery. We have a hard time embracing mystery. We want to be able to explain it all. We want to be able to figure it all out with our own minds. And here's the thing. If we can figure it all out with our own minds, we don't need faith. We don't need faith. There's no, there's no need for faith if I can figure it out. God wants us sometimes to live in the mystery, to live in the unsolved, because actually in that living place that we're formed to look more like Jesus. The other problem with this, with this approach is that God punished his people. God punished the Israelites for incomplete obedience of this specific command. They actually get in trouble ultimately for not removing the people from the land. Now, how can you say on one hand, the command was hyperbole, and on the other hand say, but God punished them for not obeying his hyperbolic command? It, you can't have it both ways. As you go into the book of Judges, the next book after Joshua, from verse 27 on, we see this litany of all the tribes, all the tribes that, what does it say? They did not drive out the Canaanites living among them. Time and time again, this condemnation is given. They did not drive out the Canaanites living among them. And as you come to chapter 2, it says, The angel of the Lord went from Gilgal to Bochim and said, I brought you up out of Egypt, led you into the land I swore to give to your ancestors. I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And you're not to make a covenant with the people of the land but you shall break down their altars, yet you have disobeyed me. Why have you done this? And I also said, I will not drive them out before you, and they will become traps for you, and their gods will become snares for you. Ultimately, he punishes the people for not 
obeying him. So you look at those two things. And you know, it's sad as you look just a little bit further into that chapter, verse 10. It says, after a whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors. In other words, after that, after that generation died, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. And the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They served the Baals. They forsook the Lord, the God of their ancestors, who had brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped various gods of the people around them. One generation. In one generation, their incomplete obedience, their half-hearted obedience, had gone from them kind of being for God to their children saying, we're chasing after the gods of the land. Now, we have to ask this question. If, 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 if God did tell them to go in and drive out the people of the land, why was it necessary? Why was this necessary? And there were really two objectives in play, at play. The first was punishment. Punishment for sin. Romans 6.23 makes it clear. The wages of sin is death. What is a wage? A wage is what you earn for an action. The wages of sin is death. We go back to Genesis chapter 15. We were here just a couple of weeks ago where Abram is having the covenant with God renewed. He's reminding him again of his covenant. And he says in this, my people will go off to a foreign land for 400 years. They're going to be slaves in that land. But eventually they'll come back. And it says, after four generations, your descendants will return. In other words, 400 years later, your descendants will return here to this land. For the sins of the Amorites do not yet warrant their destruction. Now, I, I took this and, and looked at it in four different versions so you could hear it different ways. That was New Living Translation. They do not yet warrant their destruction. The New International Version says the sins of the Amorites have not yet reached their full measure. E ESV, the English Standard Version, says the, the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And very similarly, the King James says the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. What was he saying? there was still time for these people to repent. There was still time for these people to turn back, to change. We're so quick to look at the destruction, and what we miss out on is God gave them a 400-year period to repent. Do you think 400 years is long enough? Do you, I mean, can, can you get, can you get your, your wife keeps asking you to do something. Before, if she said, get it done in 400 years, you think you could do that? I think, I think I could do that, right? 400 years is a long time. You see, we're so quick to focus on the destruction and we miss this point. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and rich in love. The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in love. The Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all he has made. He gave them 400 years to change direction. The irony that it's been 400 years since the pilgrims landed at Plymouth Rock. 400 years. And we are at a point in our nation that you start to wonder. Our sin just becomes more and more hardened. We become more and more hardened in our direction. At what point will God say, the sin has reached its full measure? And I don't know, the sin has reached its full measure is not like they had finally committed the final one. Boom, there, the scale tipped. No, what happens when we choose to live a life of sin, when we just keep going back again and again and again, our hearts grow hard. Our hearts grow unrepentant. 
There comes a point that we are not going to change direction. We're just going to keep going the way we're going, and all we're going to do then is influence other people for bad instead of bringing them around to goodness. What was the nature of their sin? What was going on there? Leviticus chapter 18 talks about it. The Lord is speaking to Moses. He says, give these instructions to the people of Israel. I am Lord your God. Do not act like the people of Egypt where you used to live or like the people of Canaan where I am taking you. You must not imitate their way of life. You must obey all my regulations and be careful to obey all my decrees for I am the Lord your God. If you obey my decrees and my regulations, you will find life through them. This is what I love. He says, the commands of God are life-giving. They don't, they don't saddle us and strap us down. They're actually life-giving. He says, I am the Lord. He come down to the end of the passage and he says, do not defile yourselves in any of these ways. These ways, there's a long list in the middle of the first part of the passage and the last. Do not defile yourself in any of these ways. For the people I am driving out before you have defiled themselves in all of these ways. So he says, here's the list of the sins of the people of the land. He says, because the entire land has become defiled, I am punishing the people who live there. I will cause the land to vomit them out. You must obey all my decrees and regulations. You must not commit any of these detestable sins. This applies to both native-born Israels and to the foreigners living among you. So then, in the middle, there's this list. It's this single-sentence list. You just see it again and again and again. And he lists the sins of the people. And most of them begin with, do not have sexual relations with. And he goes through this long list of aberrant sexual behavior, including incest, including pedophilia, including bestiality, all sorts of sins that the people were committing that were outside of the context of a man and a woman in marriage. And then he went on even further to list this. Among all those sexual sins, he says, do not give any of your children to be sacrificed to Molech, for you must not profane the name of the Lord your God. I am the Lord. He says, on top of all the sexual sins from which they were not repentant, they were actually so hardened in heart that they were able and willing to take their infant child and place it on an altar and be murdered in the name of a stone god. Chapter 18, verse 24, he says, do not defile yourself in any of these ways because this is how the nations that I'm going to drive out before you have become defiled. Please don't get the idea somehow that this was just a, an innocent group of people and God said, I want to just hand my land to somebody else. It was time for punishment for hard-hearted sin. There's another objective though, and that's protection. Protection. Deuteronomy chapter 20 where we saw that command to drive the people out. Look at verse 18. Otherwise they will teach you to follow all the detestable things they do in worshiping their gods, and you will sin against the Lord your God. He says, part of the reason I'm doing this is to protect you from going there too. I had a fun conversation with my dad on Thanksgiving. Uh, you know, he's 85, so I'm trying to get out all the stories I can and all the things about his childhood. So this particular Thanksgiving is the one that he decides to tell me that he was a thief as a kid. And he, he actually, he went into some place and stole some, some car radiators and took them over to the junkyard and got like 30 bucks cash and all of his friends divided it up. And he was, he didn't just do it, he's a ringleader, right? I mean, I'm like, oh, dad, I didn't, I don't know that I wanted to know this, my word. So, but he said, and it was kind of a moral of the story, we were talking about something else, but he said, you know, about a month later, I went to Jimmy's house and his mom comes to the door and she's just stone-faced. Mom comes to the door. 
And, and he's like, can Jimmy come out? I wanna, and, and, and she looks at my dad and she says, Jimmy will never be with you ever again, ever again. And the door closed. And the funny thing is my dad said, I didn't react. I got it. I got it. At that point in my life, I was being a bad influence on him. We all understand the way this works, right? You take one good apple and you put it in among a bunch of bad apples, all the bad apples don't suddenly become good. The bad apple becomes bad. Bad, uh, bad conduct conducts, uh, corrupts good character. And so he's saying, I'm going I'm to keep you from the sin of the land. And boy, in, in Leviticus 18 even goes on to say, all the detestable activities, this sounds like we already read this, but it's different. All these detestable activities are practiced by the people of the land where I'm taking you. And this is how the land has become defiled. So do not defile the land and give it a reason to vomit you out as it will vomit out the people who will live there now. Whoever commits any of these detestable sins will be cut off from the community of Israel. So obey my instructions and do not defile yourself by committing any of these detestable practices that were committed by the people who lived in the land before you. I am the Lord your God. Now, having listened to all this, a question arose in me and it might arise in you as well. So what about Rahab? Rahab is from Jericho. She is a pagan. She is a prostitute. She's not an Israelite. And when the spies come into the land, she gives them a place to live. And as they're leaving, she says, please, when you come and attack, save me, save my family. And they don't respond and say, well, God's told us, you know, we got to destroy you. Sorry, nothing we can do about that. Rules are rules. No, instead, immediately they say, this is what you've got to do in order to be saved. Like, what's up with that? How, how does this work? Was God being literal or not? I think what we find in the story of Rahab, actually there are, two, there are two characters that are talked about in the book of Joshua that give us a picture of what God was really all about in this particular season. You have Rahab and you have Achan. You have Rahab, who is a pagan prostitute from Jericho. And you have Achan, who's an Israelite. And not only an Israelite, he's from the tribe of Judah, the tribe of the priests. And Rahab repents, and God brings her into the family. In fact, we talked about Rahab as this was God on a rescue mission. He rescued the great-great-grandmother, ultimately, of King David, who is in the line and lineage of Jesus Christ himself. On the other hand, you have Achan, who could have said, I'm an Israelite, can't touch me. I'm from the tribe of Judah, can't touch me. What happened with him? He ends up under a pile of rocks. I don't think this was as much about God caring about a nationality as it was about him building a people for himself. A people who were wholeheartedly committed to him. And we've seen this. We saw it last week. Remember Joshua? He reads Deuteronomy to all the people. Nice long reading, and it says, present among them were the women and the children and the foreigners among them. Well, how can there be foreigners among them if we're driving out all the people of the land? The idea here was that God was giving people an opportunity to repent if they chose to repent. And having said that, when a heart comes to a place of such hardness, very often people say, I'd rather die in my sin than change my mind. I'd rather die in my sin than see a change. 
So the question for us today, the question of courage is this. Do I have the courage to let God be God? Do I have the courage to approach the Word of God and say, if that's who God says He is, I accept Him for who He says He is? Do I have the courage to let God be God? I think some of us are too fearful to let God be God. Some of us would rather have a God of our own design, of our own making, of our own imagination, than have the God that is on the pages of his actual word. What happens if we decide to take this command literally instead of explaining it away as, as hyperbole or trash talk? Well, first, it shapes my view of God. It helps me to see God for who he really is. We have a tendency to like certain characteristics of God and not like others. We do the same thing with people, right? There are people that we like certain things about them and there are certain things about them we kind of tolerate. We, we, we put up with that. We, we wish they'd change. Are we going to look at God and say, God, you are merciful, you are loving, you are compassionate, and you are holy. You hate sin. You are righteous, absolutely perfect. You are just in the truest sense of justice. My goodness, if you're talking about justice these days, our world has no sense of what justice is. We have lost our minds when it comes to justice. You want to learn what justice is? You've got to get acquainted with the God of the Bible, the God of Joshua, the God of the entire Bible, not just the God that you like in certain pages of the Bible. It shapes my view of God. It also shapes my view of virtue. When, when I look at this, I start to understand what justice really is. And in a world that has a warped view of justice, I need, to see, I need to see the standard, I need to see the ruler, and get an idea again of what real justice is, of what real holiness is, that it's an absolute hatred for sin and a love for righteousness. But further, it shapes my view of me. It helps me to see something about me. What does this passage teach us? God cares about wholeheartedness. For too many of us, we, we, we pick and choose the commands we're going to obey and we ignore others. Not convenient, don't like that one, doesn't fit with my style. The question is, are we going to be, are we going to be wholeheartedly committed to God? Or are we just going to be committed in the areas we want to be committed? And so we get the opportunity to look at a passage like this and even say, my goodness, I look at that list in, in Leviticus. I, I look at these things. Am I living wholeheartedly for God or not? There's a picture used in the Old Testament in particular of our relationship with God, that of a potter in clay. It says, yet you, Lord, are the father. We are the clay. You are the potter. We are the work of your hands. It's a beautiful recognition that God is the one in control doing the molding and the shaping. Uh, Sherry Van Eck, back there on words this morning, works with art and clay and, and has that, has a, what do you call it? It's not a spinning wheel. What's that thing called? A potter's wheel. Thank you. Technical term. There you go. And she works that and, and makes that into something absolutely beautiful. There's a clear understanding. Someone is in charge of the forming, and then there's the lump that's being formed. We are the lump. 
But, but it's funny, as you go into other parts of Isaiah, he says, what sorrow awaits those who argue with their creator? Does the clay pot argue with its maker? Does the clay dispute with the one who shapes it, saying, stop, you're doing it wrong? Or, or, or does the pot exclaim, how clumsy can you be? Ever had clay talk back, Sherry? Not yet. Not yet, right? Not yet. And yet we, the clay, talk back all the time. God, you're not doing it right. God, no, no, no. Here, let me, let me do it. There we go. I'm going to shape me. Or better yet, I'm going to shape you. I'm going to put you on the wheel. And I'm going to shape you instead. You turn things upside down as if the potter were thought to be like the clay. Shall what is formed say to the one forming it, you did not make me. Can the pot say to the potter, you know nothing? Here's the simple question. Who is shaping whom? Who is shaping whom? I'm supposed to be reading the Word of God and it is shaping me. But there are times that we approach the Word of God and we either don't understand it or there's a mystery there and we say, I'm going to return the favor. I'm going to do some shaping of my own. God wants us to be in the place of saying, you are the potter, I am the clay. Mold me and make me the way you choose. There's a song Rich Mullins wrote just prior to his death called Creed. He went through the words of the Apostle Creed and the Apostles' Creed, and then when you come to the chorus, he said these words, I believe what I believe is what makes me what I am. My beliefs are what makes me what I am. He says, I did not make it. No, it is making me. It is the very truth of God, not the invention of any man. The Word of God is making me. We talked about being formed into the image of Christ. This is how it happens. We read passages in the Bible that we say, I don't know that I like that. Hey, I'm, 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 I'm here preaching this today, I'm telling you. I still don't like it. I still don't like the fact that these people had to be driven from the land. But I'm going to read it for what it is and say, God, what is it that you're trying to form in me rather than me saying, God, I'm going to form you to look the way I want. And so, God, I pray that you will give us the courage. Give us the courage to let you be God. To stop trying to, to mold the creator. To take the clay in our hands and say, no God, this is what you should look like. Help us instead to accept you for exactly who you are, exactly what you look like, and allow that to be the formative tool in our lives, we pray, in the name of Jesus. Amen. We're going to sing a song that uh, worships God as our King, but I think part of what's beautiful about it too is that it, it sings those words again and again, you are good, you are good. And, and we have the Word of God in what we've read today, and we have the truth of God's incredible goodness. These truths come together and we don't, we don't push one away or only accept one. When we accept all of these truths together, it is then and only then that we are formed into the image of Christ the way he desires. So let's go ahead and stand and sing together.
I, I, love, I love when God does this. We, you know, we pick songs in advance, we know topics in advance, but we don't always know the two together. To sing that song today, that song today, to be able to look at the Word of God and say, God, this is who you are, and who you are is good. That is what molds us and shapes us into the image of Jesus. I hope that's your desire. You have a great week. Again, don't forget, next week, just show up when you normally do, and you'll be fine. Everybody else is messed up. So, see you later. We pour out our praise. It's your breath in our lungs. So we pour out our praise to you only. Great are you, Lord. You give life.